Hi again, everybody. John Porteous of the Levels Township Historical Society here, and you're listening to the Backcast Podcast. Hey, thanks for uh, dialing us back up. Glad to have you aboard. Uh, Richard and I have, uh, have a fun guest for you today, uh, a gentleman by the name of Vic Johnson. Uh, Vic has written uh, eight different books, um, touching on um, various aspects of our sport and uh, is just really uh, a dive into it, uh, do your due diligence type of guy. So I think you'll, uh, I think you'll enjoy our conversation. We sure did. And uh, stick around at the end, and we'll uh, bring you up to speed on what's happening at the museum. You grew up in Western Michigan, didn't you? Yeah, I grew up in Muskegon, and um, uh, my dad was. Uh, chemist, college degree chemist. He worked for Whirlpool and my mother taught school. And they were just indoors, you know, every day that they went to work. So they just didn't like being indoors. So, you know, when you're a kid, if the parents don't want to be indoors, (laughs) they're outdoors. So we, we played golf and we snow skied and we swam and we water skied and we fished and we camped and we duck hunted and we were just outdoors and and western michigan was a great place to be outdoors in and so um when i was a senior in high school uh whirlpool moved the plant to uh, uh, fort smith arkansas and so in essence they told my folks we're sending my dad, we're sending your check down there. <laughs> if you get there, uh, you're still employed. So we needed the money, so we went. So I went my senior year in Fort Smith and then went to the University of Arkansas. And again, because I like the outdoors, I got a degree in uh, civil engineering, which is a kind of outdoor profession. And um, then uh, Vietnam came along and everybody in the in my class other than I um, went to Vietnam and I was ready to go but uh, Exxon was building a refinery literally about two miles from my house and um, they needed engineers and so they said if you move to Benicia, California which is the sister city to Vallejo where I live in we'll get your critical skills deferment and uh, uh, you don't go to Vietnam. And that was a good deal, so I took it. Yep. And uh, so then I have fundamentally lived within a couple miles of the refinery um, most of my adult life. I was in Houston a little bit. but um, So, um, yeah, you start out in Muskegon and you go to Muskegon Heights High School and your parents love the outdoors and one thing leads to another and you just kind of end up in Vallejo, California. <laughs> well, did you, so when you're, when you're in Western Michigan, was, were you pretty much still water fishing at that point? We did all types of fishing. Um, we, in the winter we ice fished, uh, we trout fished and we used worms and, you know, memos and then as we got a little farther along we used um, you know small lures uh, and um, then my dad got a, a Shakespeare fly rod when they first came out because Shakespeare was there in Michigan and so everybody tinkered with it and so we by the time I was in high school we were doing some fly fishing for trout and we actually even today i still enjoy fly fishing for bluegills i think that's sure that maybe maybe that's as good as it gets but they they're fun to catch and so and then arkansas has the white river uh which is you know a world-class brown trout river and so when i got there out there it was pretty easy to get kind of hooked on just fly fishing. So, uh, but at one time or another, uh, everything from 
worms to minnows to daredevils to <laughs> you know flies to you name it. We've we've and in the summertime we and wintertime we use grubs when we ice fish. So it's just part of the evolution of a person that likes to fish. No kidding. That's awesome. What, so are you? You've talked. I I know you you've written a couple of books about fiberglass rods and you you fish glass. Is that is that pretty much your preferred medium or? Yeah, I I I, I would say it is. It's again kind of accidental. Um, when Shakespeare came out with their fly rods, their wonder rods, they they were fiberglass, and so we got kind of, I don't know, trained on a slower action rod and, and you know, our casting stroke was, and still is, <laughs> only average, but uh, <laughs> that was our stroke. And then I, I've written eight books, but the first one, my dad called me up and said he wanted to uh, write a father-son book. And I said, well, I'm sure my brother <laughs> will be glad to work with you, but you know, I'm own part of a big engineering firm, and I'm not sure. And he said, "No, I've already talked to your brother, and he doesn't know how to do it." So I <laughs> said, "All right." And so I, we're if you can visualize my skill level, uh, we're kind of B minus in everything from golf to snow skiing to uh, camping to duck hunting. Uh, and and so Dad said, well, let's pick a topic. I said, well, we're not real expert at any of these. And so he said, well, uh, I'm sure you'll figure it out. So uh, because we'd fished with fiberglass and everybody – in the early 90s was crazy about graphite rods and I bought a couple of them but they were a little too stiff for me because I'd fished glass and so I thought well why don't we just write how fiberglass fly rods had been developed and my goal and still is my goal is not to compete with anybody um, in my writing so almost all my books are the worst book ever written on the subject uh, probably the best book ever written on the subject because they're the only book ever written on the subject so, <laughs> well you know your uh your books remind me uh, if you knew art newman he put out a uh, fly tying guide that he used yeah to it was this up. and it was like it was what you needed to know about fly fishing in this area the flies where to use them, how to tie them, is no, uh, you know, no this uh, Zen stuff or any of that bullshit. I mean, it was just what you needed to know to. But it was it was everything you needed to know. And, and your books are kind of like that to me. They, uh, you know, they tell you what you need to know, and you, when you get done with it, you understand what you, uh, what, what you read. Yeah. It, again, uh, my I didn't I have a clue how to end up writing eight books. I thought I'd just write one and my dad would be happy and we'd have it published and, um, you know, we could get on to other things. But um, it turned out the firm I own part of, we had 42 offices and so I was flying around all the time in the U.S. and overseas. And so it gave me a economic advantage over the other people writing because I, I could call on somebody in Stockholm when I was there working, uh, like Christian Horgren, who makes wonderful rods and reels. And, you know, I just go have lunch with them and, you know, my out-of-pocket cost might be 60 bucks for lunch because I was there anyway. And so nice. I, I just picked um, topics uh, that I had an advantage in in researching, and and I didn't want to this get a bunch of magazines and uh, 
kind of say this is how it happened because there's so much marketing hype, you know, in these magazine articles. Uh, boron rods are a good example. Uh, they make wonderful fly rods, but they were super hard to make, and the people that made them generally got hurt, and so, you know, it was a big fad, and then it just went away. And so I wanted to talk to the people that were actually, you know, owned the company or running the company, and uh, and so uh, all my books have had that basic format in that, uh, you know, people say to me all the time, you know, your, your book on... Uh, waiters is the worst book I've ever read on waiters, and I say that's true. And uh, then they also say, "Well, that's the only book in waiters." And so <laughs> I read it, kind of thing. and so um, I I didn't want to compete with what I call the professional writers. I wanted to force them to compete with me in doing uh, research, intense research, and the topics I write on are not as wide as theirs, and so uh, I'm just completing two years of research on my ninth book, and I I haven't read, written a word, and I'm getting <laughs> ready. And so, uh, you know, a commercial writer for one of the magazines or you know the people we see on TV, they can't go do two years of economical research on on a topic uh, it, it doesn't pencil out for them and yet it works for me that's mm. fantastic kind of like uh, Michael Critton I think all of his books were you know researched uh, you know obviously deeply uh, they were they were a little more on the entertainment scale but I think you guys have probably looked at it with the same uh, intensity yeah, yeah, and, and uh, uh, you know, the big-name people, they sell more. You know, I only have 6,000 readers, and so they sell more than that in a morning at Walmart. And so it, it's we're not really in the same profession. You know, James Grisham probably sells 10,000 books in a morning through Walmart, and I spend three years and sell 6,000 books. So uh, it's a, you know, he's a major league author and I'm a single A author, if you use the baseball yeah, analogy. Sales. Oh yeah, You'll, we'll easily double your sales, no problem. For one morning. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe you'll get That's one. Right. <laughs> but, you know, and, and let's not undersell it, Dick. Um, I, I, you know, I think uh, Mr. Randolph, the uh, editor emeritus, uh, declared you to be one of the most articulate, well-researched, and uh, uh, put-together uh, guys out there. And I think that uh, he showed quite a bit of admiration for your work. Yeah, that was neat. I don't know if it's true, but... Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, it, I loved getting it, and uh, he's actually <clears throat> writing a book on, I don't know the, I don't know what it would be called, but probably it's got 60 famous people that he's fished with for all different times of fishing, but he knows what he did, but he didn't really know the background that much of uh how, what kind of rods they were using early on. This is what we're talking about. They obviously know what they're doing today, but they didn't. Uh, he he didn't ask them what they fished with 20 years ago, and so he bought all my books to, in essence, supplement not really what he'd done, but to give a little more meat on the bone for these where these people had come from before he fished with them, and uh, and. And that's fine. I, I, I'm comfortable in my skin on this. I, in fact, this morning I was, um, I haven't signed it yet, but Montana State has a big uh, fishing university uh, in section in their uh, library, their special collections. And 
I've been getting my stuff um, uh, ready on a handshake uh, arrangement that it'll all go to uh, Montana State. And they have a good program that you can send, like in my case, uh, my archives on eight books over 25 plus years. And then uh, I hope to live for a long time, but then when I get done with book nine, I'll send it along. And, and so you know, it, their theory is they'd rather have the research and the archives coming in while the person doing it was still alive and could tell what what he was doing. And, and, and I'm all for being still alive, so I'm doing that. And I was working on that uh, this morning. And actually... I had, you know, I had written a book called Eight Points of Light, and uh, Art Newman was in there, and I saw, actually, I think the same document you were talking about. He had written this a small pamphlet on the ten flies to use in northern Michigan and and That's how to tie them, and uh, you know, and so that was, you know, the kind of thing I was looking for too. But your Eight Points of Light book, you know. Uh, we were fumbling around a couple of years ago trying to figure out what kind of display to do in the museum. And then that year we ended up doing Unsung Heroes, but really the inspiration for that was I thought back to, you know, your eight points of light, and I said, why not highlight some of the lesser-known guys, you know, and we pitched that, and that's what we did for a, uh, that was our display that year. Yeah, so you, you've motivated us. And also, um, I might add, uh, you know, we're thankful. Grateful for your cooperation and letting us use some of your material in the Newman Room here in the museum. Yeah, that was a big deal. Well, I'm glad to do it. And yeah, these, if I've learned anything in 25 plus years of writing, is <clears throat> most of the really major innovations didn't really come from college type people. Uh, and, you know, research chemists and everything. They came from this people that were maybe possessed or, you know, obviously very motivated to kind of improve the sport. Uh, you know, when you see a, a rod and it says it's a six-weight six rod, a guy right here in the Bay Area named Myron Gregory, he invented the weight system, and he was a conductor on the Southern Pacific uh, railroad, and so he, you know, bounced around in the West and had his little typewriter, and he'd send off letters all over the world, and he and a couple of his colleagues, in, a, in essence, invented the weight system uh, for fly rods, and so everybody in the world um, uh, uses it, and I don't think he ever made a dime at it. Wow. And so, um, and you meet, you meet so many interesting people. Most of the people that did this uh, significant uh, modernization of our sport, uh, they weren't all college guys. In fact, most of them weren't. And so they had ton of priceless information in their head. And you know, I'd come along and. They were thrilled to talk to me because they wanted what they'd done to be recorded, and obviously I wanted to record it. And so I, you know, you have to wash out the, uh, you know, every old timer I'd interview would tell me he scored the winning touchdown in uh, <laughs> high school, and you know he Betty Grable wanted to um, date him, and and he. Uh, <laughs> He had another girlfriend, but I remember I was interviewing a guy named Buzz Fiorini, which was involved with Fenwick, and um, he was telling me, he said, yeah, I ran around John Wayne and um, Ted Trueblood, and, and I'm, you know, I'm trying to understand what he knew about Fenwick, and he said, here, I'll go get the pictures, and so he, yeah. went, he went over and got an album, and here's John Wayne and him you know, fishing together, and here's Ted Trueblood, and I don't remember what the girl was, but it was like Gloria Swanson or something like that. And so, <laughs> you know, some of these people had these 
wonderful treasures in their mind, and they were just looking for somebody to help them, in essence, get them out. And so uh, that was a big motivation to me. The same thing with Art Newman. You know, he was a machinist for, what, Eaton Axel, and so uh, yet he did so much to change our sport. So, oh, my uh, goodness. Yeah, and so yeah, we tend to think that every um, innovation in anything comes from someone who has a postdoctorate from Stanford or something like that. And, and that's just not been the case historically, thank God, so to speak. They were just motivated right. people. <laughs> you know, when you think back and those guys that were doing that then, they did it with paper and pencil. You know, they didn't have Internet or word processors. Oh, you know, oh yeah. A letter and wait for it to come back. Yeah, there's no, no calculators, a lot of slide rules, and, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we built the refinery in Benicia when I was with Exxon. We spent $340 million in, from 1968 to, let's say, 70, and all of us used slide rules. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and I tell that to my grandchildren, they just roll their eyes, you know. <laughs> Have you ever tried to teach teach them how to use one? Uh, yeah, <laughs> and they don't they don't get it. <laughs> they want to. What <laughs> key do I press? You know. Where's uh, the button? How do you oh, how do you charge it? <laughs> I gotta sympathize with them. I still haven't figured out a veneer caliber, you know. <laughs> it's yeah. actually. Um, um, uh, I'm a licensed civil engineer, so you have to get out of college and take some tests, national tests, and then apprentice for four years, and then take your state boards. And so uh, I've had a lot of college graduates get out, not a lot, but a few get out, take their initial, what's called engineering in training, and then they're working for me or on my staff, and um, and their work is just not very good because they just believe whatever comes out of the computer screen. And so, you know, I, I'm not very nice about that. <laughs> I, I call them in and say, this is this crazy. And they say, no, it's not. I'm using the latest, you know, software. And so I've had two of them that never really got it. And so when it came time for me to sign off that they had done their apprenticeship, uh, I conditionally signed off saying they'd have to go back and take some more mathematics because I, I just couldn't sleep at night having them out designing <laughs> a bridge that was gonna fall down or something that because the computer said it was gonna stay up. So uh, there's something to be said about this fundamental mathematics and logic, um, but that's an old-timer talking, I guess. Uh, it's, so. you know, it, it's, it's still valid, still valid. Well, you know, I was in communications, uh, telecommunications, <laughs> and that was a problem we had. A lot of guys, everybody knew networking and, you know, the higher-level stuff, but nobody understood how it was delivered, you know, the base layers of transport and all that. So, yeah, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so relative to, and I know it's I'm gonna it's almost going to be like asking about a favorite kid, but is there of the books that you've written, is there one that holds a special place for you? Um, you know, the answer is kind of like your children. It's no, you all love them for different reasons. Um, uh, the two best sellers, if if that's how one looks at best book, which I don't, were I wrote three on fiberglass fly rods. Uh, one kind of the view from 1996, and then a 20-year update of that because by that time they were building them all over the world, and this update really was the U.S. You know, kind of custom shops that were doing it. And then book three was the third iteration, which was the 
people building them around the world. And so that has been, a, uh, from a sales standpoint, a popular series. And then I wrote Fenwick, and I got Don Green again, who owned a good chunk of Fenwick, to help me. Great guy. Um, and uh, I had no idea at the time, although I always liked Fenwick fly rods, but the, there are probably 100,000 people in, in the United States that want to have one of every Fenwick fly rods, and they're just crazy about them. And, uh, uh, and I don't reprint any of my books because I'm on to the next subject, but when it first came out, uh, it was twenty four ninety five, and and a guy actually came over to over to my house on Christmas Day and bought ten, and I thought that was I, it, it, he paid me cash, so I didn't I don't know if I would have taken a check, but anyway, uh, and <laughs> at one time it was Fenwick was selling on eBay for five hundred bucks a copy. The Fenwick people are uh, it's kind of a 57 Chevy to a lot of people, uh, I assume most are my age because that was the heyday. And um, so those those two, uh, the fiberglass fly rods and Fenwick have been the uh, most popular from a sales standpoint. Um, but like right now, I'm, I don't have a title for my next book but you know I'm deeply immersed in the what's going on related to fish hatcheries and that uh, now that sounds kind of stupid but people thought it was stupid when I wrote a book on fly lines and waders and then again they became popular but the fish hatchery that we've grown up with with the raceways and you go out and throw pellets in, in it and the fish come up and you know go crazy over the food um, in probably half the places clearly in the United States but probably worldwide that design is uh, really not relevant anymore and uh, that's because the world is heating up due to climate change and we all debate who's doing it how big it is is it a joke blah 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 well the fish they don't really care all they know is the water is getting warmer the trout particularly and so um, as water gets warmer you have more pathogens uh, get into the water. Just, there are more bad things. It's like being in the Amazon. There are a lot of bugs and diseases. And so there have been massive uh, trout kills in uh, hatcheries with that design. Uh, California, we had one, I think it was six million or maybe it was eight million fish. We had a euphonize. Then we had another one, I think it was 350,000 fish. Arizona lost their 57% um, of all their hatchery output. They had to euphanize because the fish got sick. Uh, University of California, Davis, uh, this lost 22,000 fish. And so if you're in a relatively warm area and, and your water gets relatively warm, the old design doesn't work. And so then obviously you have, and I'm rambling, but bear with me, uh, you know, fish hatcheries really do three things. They grow fish for us to catch. They grow fish for what I call conservation to maintain, uh, we'll call them rare or endangered species. And then they grow fish for us to eat, aquaculture. And so the new model um, is to grow fish in, in essence, tankage inside of a building. So there isn't any exterior part of it. And you've got 
you know, uh, UV light to kill the bugs, and you got um, sludge management on and on. And, um, and, and over probably the next 10 years, that will become the dominant uh, system of growing trout on land. But even it doesn't work that well and bothers me as an engineer, but <clears throat> uh, the aquaculture people from Norway built a big facility down in Florida and something went wrong down there and they had a massive fish kill in their recirculating aquaculture system, which is the, uh, you know, we talk about cell phones with fifth generation. It's the second generation, in essence, um, growing fish that doesn't require flow through water. And so we're in a uh, this kind of a bind in that the old way of doing it, which nobody did anything wrong, is really not working that well. And the new way is... Um, having problems too, which as an engineer, everything you build is better the second time you build it or the third time. And we're just kind of caught in that uh, the growing no, man's, no man's land between the two. And, uh, um, and it's a awkward place for the world to be because we need farm fish to eat. We need to conserve our endangered species and and we and we also need uh, excuse me I'll, I'll take this okay. off um, we need fish to catch and so I've now spent five years trying to understand how all these pieces go together so that's my favorite that's a long answer to what is no. my favorite, right, and that's my favorite right now because it's such a, a world-class problem, and sport fishing is just a little bit of it. Well, and it's it's an it's an, I mean, a an up to the minute changing landscape that way. Um, yeah, whether it's, it's scary. Whether it be what the conditions we're observing, or um, you know, in terms of the aquaculture thing, you know, I know that. That's an iterative process where improvements are being made, but it, you know, as you alluded, it's in that awkward learning stage where the the degree of mistakes will probably be more significant at this point in development. Yeah, and 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 again, I you know draw a big bold and underline this following statement: the hatchery people that have been with us for a long time, they do a great job. And they didn't do anything wrong in the world that's changed. Right. And when you talk to them now, when you get online, uh, there are a couple lawyers and a couple media people, as well as a person you want to talk to. And they're, I wouldn't say scared, but the ramifications of in California, we have 23 hatcheries. Let's say half of them have to be modernized. Uh, the the costs are just astronomical, and they they can't really just pass them along to the sport fishermen because uh, nobody will pay that share on top of their license. I mean, we're talking lots and lots of dollars, and so. Um, it's uh, and then the federal government's studying this like mad, but I have to file what are called FOIA requests, and they drag their feet on sending me their research. And so uh, we're as a world and as a country, we're just in that awkward time warp between what has worked so well in the past and all the people in the past have done such a great job and where we need to go in the future, and it's not working perfectly. Right, right. And, and nobody's done anything wrong. It's just life. Well, and exactly. It's And, you know, we see it up here where we're not 
not dealing with hatchery fish, um, but, you know, wild and natives. And it's just, um, it can be frustrating when you're, are not able to control it, if you will. Yeah, and uh, the, quote, official answer is that these fish are dying because a bird will be um, walking around a mile away and uh, on his feet will, he'll pick up the pathogen and then he'll fly over to the stream or the hatchery, primarily the hatchery, and then he'll defecate or um, sit on the thing and then the pathogen will fall into the water. But even wild and native fish, if the water heats up too much, uh, they don't do well. I mean, in Yellowstone River, which I wrote in my book eight, which was what's happening behind the fish hatchery door today, and that was kind of where it was two years ago. The the Yellowstone River used to be a wonderful uh, cutthroat river, and now it's a wonderful smallmouth bass river. (laughs) And so, uh, and the cutthroats were native for the last several thousands of years, but the lower reaches of the Yellowstone and I haven't been up there to validate this, but the research says the smallmouth bass are moving, in essence, up the mountain uh, because it's getting warmer, and the uh, cutthroat are moving farther up the mountain because that's where the water's colder. So they're, no one is going to be immune from climate change as it relates to their traditional fishery. I wish that wasn't the case. I'd love to be back in Muskegon in, you know, 1956, you know, and no one was thinking about this. Okay. Right. Kind of like the chaos theory in practical application, you know. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, and so, um, and again, I'm not trying to write anything that some newspaper or magazine could emotionalize. I'm just trying to, as best I can see it, nobody's done anything wrong. Uh, The hatchery people are working like mad with the traditional hatcheries to do a good job. The the international aquaculture people, they're working like mad to grow more fish for us to eat. And my wife and I eat farm-raised uh, salmon all the time. It's wonderful, and thank God they're doing it. Um, uh, and the engineers are working on the newer technology to allow the aquaculture people to do it, and even the conservation people that are just growing endangered fish. We have one in Nevada, uh, just to grow, in essence, Lahontan trout. Yeah, exactly. And sure. it's um, it needs significant upgrade because it's what they call partially recirculating aquaculture system. And what was the great technology, I don't know, 10 years ago when it was built, uh, is not the great technology today. So it needs upgrading. So we're, we're at it actually from a hatchery standpoint. We're just in a kind of a no man's land on how all this works out. I think everybody that researches understands the problem, but, you know, where does the money come to upgrade these hatcheries and blah, blah, blah. And, oh, you know, sure. you got to be higher up the um, chain of command than little Vic Johnson to figure this out. My goal is just to kind of write a semi-intelligent analysis of, how to where we're at, which is not really real great right now. Ten years from now, it'll be wonderful, but um, right now it's it's awkward. Yeah, that's wild. The, um, well, what's um, <laughs> there's a lot to think about there, Vic. There's a lot to unpack there. 
Uh, we could probably spend another hour going down that route. Um, what, uh, I, I guess, what's next? Do you, do you anticipate wrapping your research on this in the next couple of years, and then, or is it sooner than that? Or yeah, hopefully, I've spent two years on the transition from what I call the old model to the new model. <laughs> <laughs> Not everybody knows what the new model is, but so I'll I'm getting all my stuff ready to go to Montana State for the first eight books, and hopefully I'll get that. Uh, if you've ever written anything or just kept your records, your tax records, when somebody says send me 27 years of your archives on this or that, it's it's a nightmare, you know. And my Thank wife you. and I have. Found stuff in the house that, you know, it's under the guest bedroom kind of thing. <laughs> you know, you don't know where it is. You know, what did you do 25 years ago when you were writing the first fiberglass fly rods? I'm, you know, I, I can't remember what I had for breakfast a week ago. So, um, but anyway, that that'll be off hopefully to Montana State. And again, I just have a handshake. They're going to take all this. Hope they do. And then I'll start writing the book, uh, oh, I don't know, 60 days from now. And that's actually the, not necessarily the easier, but it's the quicker process. And so then nine months later, you know, it'll, it'll come out. Look, in a year, 18 months, you should be able to get a hold of the book. Yeah, hopefully within a year. And, uh, um, uh, and so... Uh, and don't, even though I'm, you're recording me, you know, I change my mind on this stuff all the time. This is a real difficult worldwide problem, but uh, I've done two years of research, and I think what I've told you is, you know, 90% accurate. I'm sure somebody's got better stuff out there. I just haven't found it yet. Hmm. Well, I don't but, think anybody, uh, but it's been a great... Um, uh, a great run for me because I'm, um, you know, I'm going to New Zealand in uh, January, and so you have somebody that reads your book over there, and you say where to fish, and he says, "Let me know when you're here, and I'll take you." That kind of thing, and so uh, <laughs> writing, <wrong> these, <laughs> writing these books is not. Uh, without rewards it's it's a pain in the neck to go through the whole process the editors and you know graphic designers and all that but um you know it's kind of like raising a kid you know you put all your <laughs> effort in and pretty soon they graduate from college and hopefully they're a you know a good person well and, and just like with children you've got you know fun days and some that maybe aren't as fun but uh yeah. it'll it all turns out the right way yeah yeah it's uh are at least i've never figured out a painless way to go through life so yeah 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 no that, that wouldn't be right yeah that's fun well uh is is the new zealand trip uh part of the research or is that uh a business trip and a uh and a fishing hour? Uh, a little bit of both. Um, my wife, who loves to fly fish, and she's actually probably a better researcher uh, than I am. I mean, we we went back in, a few weeks ago, and uh, uh, most of my stuff is actual face-to-face -face interviews. So we were talking to the head of, in essence, trout research in uh, Lewistown, uh, West Virginia, and it's the USDA, what they're working on. And uh, and so this guy's got a postdoc and a wonderful guy. And uh, so I ask him these kind of questions and he answers them. And then my wife is almost like one of these TV reporters. <laughs> and, you know, I have a follow-up question here. <laughs> what about this? <laughs> and I'm going, no, no, this, this is softball we're not trying to you know, <laughs> force force anybody into oh, it's you know. the good cop bad cop interview technique 
Yeah, and so so <laughs> she she likes this, and we uh, uh, we went to uh, uh, the OIE. I don't know if you guys follow the OIE, but it's the World Organization for Fish Health, and actually for all animal health. And it's in Paris, and they set the standards on what qualifies as a healthy chicken or pig or fish, so you can send them from country to country. Sure. And um, so I went over and interviewed the head of fisheries, and uh, fortunately, when she got to Paris, she was more interested in dresses and that kind of stuff. So the guy got an easier interview. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so there's a lot of people out there worried about, not worried, they're, it's their profession to have safe fisheries. And then we went on to Boxmere, uh, Netherlands, and interviewed Hendrik's Genetics, and they have a Ph.D. guy that they're looking to grow the healthiest fish, again, for aquaculture, so they don't want any kind of weak DNA and all this, and what they're doing is almost Star Wars kind of stuff, and they've been doing this. They own Trout Lodge here in the United States, and that's where uh, a lot of eggs go. They they send eggs all over the world to grow trout, and so they've got to have a healthy... Uh, um, uh, Good seed stock. Yeah, and so uh, so all our vacations end up being a little bit interviewing the OIE and shopping for dresses and things like that. So they all get mushed together. We try to do several things when we're out there because it's a long way from home. And uh, but we that's we like that. It's, we're not being punished. It's it's a fun yeah. way to. Uh, Wake up in the morning and learn something. Well, that, it's pretty rare error that you know to have the uh, circumstance to facilitate that. So, it's it's fascinating that you're able to uh, take advantage of these situations. Yeah, and um, uh, but I, you know, I I am who I am, and I will never be. You know, John Grisham will be on Oprah or something, and explain how his book has sold 20 million copies <laughs> and um, you're the first you know podcast I've participated in so thank you very you're, much but I'll get you to the backcast podcast so uh, yeah, well, it's, it's uphill from here Rebecca. yeah it's it it should all be positive for you sir yeah well I'm I'm this Joe lunch bucket out here trying to do his thing and get on with life we, we we say this completely tongue in cheek, Vic. Um, we're we're on. I, I would suggest one of the lower rungs of the podcasting world, but um, it's okay. We're having fun with it, and we enjoy it, and we get to talk to awesome people like yourself. So it's all good. Yeah, yeah. If you if this podcast ends up being of interest to three people, but one of them wants to go to college and understand fish health or something that could change the world so exactly it's it, one, it at time, one at a time you know exactly. and, uh, we're participating in chaos you know yeah a little action here creates the, a big one there the the butterfly butterfly ripple effect i would say chaos is probably our watchword <laughs> <laughs> but anyway thank you guys and uh, thank you for asking me to and I apologize, I get kind of rambly on these things. but Not at all. No, this is perfect, Vic. Thank you very much. We're most grateful, and I think our listeners will really enjoy uh, hearing your thoughts. Well, uh, I hey, hope Vic. they do, whether there's three or 133. So, you know, if, if we can help one person understand the sport we're in, uh, We've we've done something worthwhile. I mean, so before we leave, Vic, how do you, how do listeners uh, how do you prefer listeners to buy the book? They or could four books. I mean, just off of Amazon, or do you have a a direct site that you prefer? 
Uh, I have a couple of distributors, and um, but probably the simplest thing is just to email me, and my email address is, you guys have it, but for the listeners, it's V for Victor, R for Rudolph, J for Johnson, VRJ, and then I live in Vallejo, and that's V for Victor, A for Apple, L for Long, L for Long, E for Eagle, J for June, O for Orange. So it's vrjvallejo at gmail.com. Awesome. And we'll uh, include that in the show link so that uh, people can reach out to you. Well, thank you very much. And, uh, you know, I, what you guys are doing is uh, it's certainly – it's probably more significant than what I'm doing because you're touching more people and you're you see the bigger picture where uh, you know I'm some psychiatrists have field day saying you've been spending five years understanding how growing fish in a hatchery works. <laughs> yeah, that's what I've been doing. And the guy goes. You know, I'm so sorry. I'm sure that's what they'd say. So uh, we just call it. We call that solid due diligence. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, that's. I mean, I think we're missing that <laughs> societally. I mean, you could have been a politician. <laughs> anyway, thank you guys, and and have a have a good fall. Thank you, Vic. Be well, sir. Hey, I want to Bye. Vic's a great guy. That was a lot of fun. Uh, definitely would encourage you to uh, uh, stop by uh, the library. You might have, stand a good chance of uh, picking up one of his books there. There's some uh, still available fresh um, in various online uh, outlets and such, but uh, definitely fun reading, especially The Eight Points of Light. That was, uh, as Richard alluded to, uh, the basis for our uh, display the year before last, the unsung heroes of the Asable. So, uh, fun guy with Vic. So, that brings us to more museum stuff. Uh, next week, uh, September the 10th, from 11 a.m. until 3 p.m. in uh, at the museum complex in Lovells, uh, we're having our art sale. The art sale um, is our vehicle this year for raising our scholarship uh, funds. We uh, we equip uh, two students a year with uh, $1,000 scholarships to go to uh, Kirkland College and uh, uh, to assist them in their course of studies and uh, have a lot of neat success stories in the community as a function of that. So uh, we'll look forward to seeing you. Uh, make yourselves known. And until next time, mind your backcast. <laughs>